0: We'll hear argument first this morning in case zero eight ten sixty-five, Pottawatomie County versus McGee. Mr Sanders? Mr. Chief Justice,
1: and may it please the court. If a prosecutor's absolute immunity in judicial proceedings means anything, it means that a prosecutor may not be sued because a trial has ended in a conviction. Yet that is exactly what happened in this case. Lower courts may not fashion exceptions to the immunity this, pro- this court provided in Imbler by purporting to relocate a due process injury from the trial to an earlier investigation. Your, your, your case here is, is a polite
2: way of telling us we wasted our time in Buckley versus the Simmons.
1: Um, your Honor, I-, I, mean, I mean, we were just spinning our wheels in that case? Your Honor, I I don't believe so at all. I I think that this case presents exactly the question that Buckley reserved, and that is whether the fabrication of evidence by a prosecutor in and of itself, without regard to its use in some way, states a constitutional cause of action. In this case, uh, the use at trial obviously was absolutely immunized under Imbler and many of this other — this Court's other precedents. Despite respondents' best efforts to argue that there was some sort of due process violation caused by the fabrication itself without regard to its use in some way, there simply is no support for that.
3: Does that mean that even if we were dealing with police officers who did what the prosecutors were alleged to have done at the investigation stage, no prosecutor, only police investigators, the fact that a trial — And the conviction had occurred would mean that the police officers were not liable either.
1: Your Honor, the fact that a trial and conviction had occurred could mean that the police officers were liable because of the due process violation at the trial. But in footnote 5 of Buckley, this court was very clear and insisted that there is no disjunction between observing that a prosecutor, like a police officer, has only qualified immunity during the investigation, while at the same time insisting that that does not affect the fact that the prosecutor has absolute.
2: Take two cases. One is Justice Ginsburg's case. A police officer fabricates the evidence, dupes the prosecuting attorney, or, or, or doesn't fully disclose. Uh, case two. A prosecutor does the same thing and gives it to a fellow prosecutor. Same, should the analysis be precisely the same?
1: Your Honor, it should be the same if the prosecutor in the second case that you hypothesize uh, had nothing to do with the later prosecution. In other words, if we could view that prosecutor simply as an ordinary citizen, simply as a complaining witness, as analogous to a police officer. So there's no argument in this case that simply by virtue of being a prosecutor, a prosecutor has absolute immunity. The courts below wrongfully abrogated trial immunity because trial is the only place where the injury of conviction and subsequent incarceration could have taken place. Without reference to that specific injury, there is simply no other
3: injury. The uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I fully grasp your answer to my first question and to Justice Kennedy's. That is, yes or no, if everything that happened was alleged to have happened, but it was done by a police officer, or a different prosecutor, mm-hmm. nonetheless the trial went on, the fabricated evidence was introduced. Without any participation by the actual prosecutor in that fabrication, mm-hmm. there's a conviction. Do, does the, do the police officers or the prosecutor that was not involved in trial Get absolute? Are they? Are they no longer liable? Not because they have absolute immunity, but because the trial and conviction at which the evidence was used overtakes what liability they might have had absent the trial. Is that your position?
1: Your Honor, our position is, I, I believe I would agree with you, our position is there is no liability for the initial fabrication. As the United States explains in its brief, for a police officer to be held liable in those circumstances, it would need to be under some sort of malicious prosecution theory that would depend on the actual conviction and the use of the evidence at trial. But the use of the evidence at trial is the injury itself, and that is exclusively a prosecutorial act Only a prosecutor could have. You're
4: not answering the question clearly. Uh, Are are both the prosecutor, in 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 Justice Ginsburg's hypothetical, and the policeman liable? Uh, Can't you answer that, yes or no? uh, Yes. uh, uh, This court. I thought your answer was. The the police
1: officer likely this Court has never, never addressed the issue, the police officer would likely be
4: liable because the police officer would have no immunity for the use she, of the evidence. She's more concerned about the prosecutor, and the prosecutor also would be treated just like a police officer. the prosecutor performed no prosecutorial function, that's In correct. In the case. Yeah. That's correct, Your Honor. But,
1: only if the only if the evidence is presented at trial, but only if the evidence is presented at trial, because that's the only way the evidence can provide injury in some way. So, so the law is: the more deeply you're
2: involved in the wrong, uh, the more likely you are to be immune. That's just a strange proposition.
1: <laughs> Your Honor, I think it's, it's not the more deeply you're involved. It's whether you are in the unique position of a prosecutor to cause injury by use of the evidence at trial. That is exclusively a prosecutorial function. Um, the function test of, Imbler, of of Buckley goes to what function someone is performing, but only
3: the prosecutor can ever perform the function of actually using the but evidence. But it's, it, it it's strange to say you could have a prosecutor — who wasn't involved in the trial would have liability, but as long as the prosecutor in effect turns the investigatory stage material over to himself rather than to another prosecutor, then is absolute immunity.
1: Your Honor, that is correct, but I think the Court more than 80 years ago, when it summarily affirmed Yaselli versus Goff from the Second Circuit, spoke to this question. In that case, the Court said, affirmed the Second Circuit in its view that if a prosecutor cannot, if a prosecutor has absolute immunity for acting maliciously at trial, that immunity cannot be circumvented. No, but
3: the the question is not at trial, nothing about trial. It's the pretrial conduct.
1: The the odd thing about, if we're taking out reference to the trial itself, then there simply can be no claim. Um, respondents urge a new freestanding right separate and
3: apart from the due process trial right, yet at the same time. But you said that, that, that there would be liability as long as it wasn't the same person involved in the investigation and the trial. Even though there had been a trial, you say, Uh, You answered, Justice Scalia, that those people separated from the trial would be liable, even though there was a trial. And it you.
1: Your Honor, looking to the common law, the, the rationale for that would be a form of malicious prosecution. But as you observed in your concurrence in Albright, asserting malicious prosecution against a prosecutor would be anomalous, because it's the prosecutor who is exclusively responsible for causing the kind of injury. If a police officer or a non-prosecuting prosecutor simply fabricates the evidence, as Chief Judge Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit said, there can be no cause of action. It is the exclusive function of a prosecutor in a case who uses the
5: evidence, who can cause the injury. and: It makes no sense because if you go down that road, then what you're saying is that neither the prosecutor, neither a police officer or a different prosecutor who fabricated evidence could be liable either, because the only person who causes the deprivation is the prosecutor who uses the false evidence in the trial.
1: Your Honor, this court has not spoken to that question, but as you state it, that would be the rationale of the restatement actually. The restatement says if there is no deception of the prosecutor, then it is the prosecutor's willful and, and, and free will use of the evidence. At now the, trial. the
5: Second Circuit in its decision, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Judge Newman, mm-hmm. looked at it and said, there are two causes to the injury here. <clears throat> One is the fabrication. Mm-hmm joint tort visas. there are two people who can cause any injury, mm-hmm. and the prosecutor who actually puts the evidence in at trial. That's how you hold police officers and different prosecutors liable,
4: mm-hmm.
5: because they are assisting in the violation that is occurring. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't that theory fit the same prosecutor who commits two different acts? Your Honor, I think one commits the direct violation, and the other act, the investigatory act, contributes to it, leads to it as a joint activity with it.
1: Your Honor, I believe the analysis is not that it, because it leads to the injury itself. The tort of, of wrongful conviction based on use of false evidence at trial has only one element under this Court's precedence in Pyle and Mooney and Heisler and Roshin, that element is the prosecutor's use of the evidence at trial. But simply because that act is absolutely immune is not to
5: say that someone else who's responsible for you're, — you're, you're confusing. The, the constitutional injury is the deprivation of liberty. The, the deb- That's the injury. That's correct. What causes that injury is not an element of the crime. It is — the question is, have you proven — the violation? Mm-hmm. Have you proven the injury? Well, it, so it, why does the use because become that, the defining scope of the injury? Because that is the way a prosecutor would be held
1: liable. The cause of action against a prosecutor, even though he would be absolutely immune, would be the prosecutor's knowing or even unknowing use of the false evidence at trial. But in this case, Respondents ask for a freestanding due process right that would somehow at the same time protect the interest against wrongful conviction at trial. That simply can't be. This Court's — What
3: what about the the view that uh, Judge Fairchild expressed very simply? He said, if this fabrication had not occurred, there never would have been
1: any trial. Your Honor, as we discussed in our opening brief in this case, I think that Judge Fairchild's reasoning is classic malicious prosecution reasoning. Uh, That is, that it's the false evidence that impelled the prosecution. But again, uh, this Court has been absolutely clear that a malicious prosecution theory cannot be asserted against a prosecutor because a prosecutor can initiate willfully and maliciously a wrongful prosecution based on good evidence, bad evidence, or no evidence at all. Uh, It's simply untenable to say, and and this Court's decision last term in Vandekamp made clear that where the injury comes at trial, where that is the interest protected against, uh, that you can somehow abrogate immunity and continue with a case based on that kind of claim, based on a a claim of an earlier — Was there no
3: injury in the period before — let's leave that trial for a moment — there was a deprivation of liberty during the investigatory stage?
1: Your Honor, I think any earlier deprivation of liberty would be covered by the Fourth Amendment. Uh, The Fourth Amendment is not implicated in the question presented here. It has not been briefed. Surely there would be an interest against wrongful seizure or, since this — these arrests were pursuant to legal process, against a form of malicious prosecution. But again, that would be a Fourth Amendment theory, and it could not be asserted if it is malicious prosecution against a prosecutor. Would you clear up one thing for me? I really don't quite understand.
6: Uh, You do agree that if police officers did this, there would be liability?
1: Uh, Your Honor, this Court has not addressed that issue. That is the view of some of the circuits and the Are you assuming that to be correct, or are are you disputing that?
6: Uh, We're assuming that to be correct, but if I may. But if that's true, why doesn't the trial immunize the police officers? Because they didn't cause the trial. Well, they're the background in the same sense that these prosecutors are. But why would the police officers be liable? A police officer would never get immunity at trial because. He doesn't get immunity, but why is he liable? Why is he liable? Because the injury was caused by the trial, the understand injury theory. The theory of the,
1: of the common law malicious prosecution would be that the police officer is liable because his fabrication of evidence um, impelled the proceeding, caused the proceeding yeah, but to But it was be, not a malicious
6: prosecution. prosecution. Prosecutors acted in good faith all the way through. So
1: there is no military procedure. So what is the basis for liability against the police officer? The basis for liability precisely against the police officer would be the violation of the due process right to a fair trial. Wrongful conviction on the basis of Why doesn't that
6: theory apply to the-
1: to the facts of this case also? This theory wouldn't apply to the facts of this case, because in this case, the prosecutors made the decision independently to initiate the prosecution. It's undisputed that they did that in their capacity as prosecutors. The, they, uh, the, the Police Officers Act could not cause injury but for the immunized act of a prosecutor beginning the prosecution. This uh, this
6: investigation uh, by the prosecutors could not have caused injury but for the immunized act of going
1: forward with the trial. Mm -hmm. But, But Your Honor, I think think that that reasoning would be contrary to what this Court affirmed in Yaselli and what this Court has said, which the Court has repeatedly cited favorably. And that is, and and it, it would also run up against the concerns that Justice Kennedy indicated in his concurrence in Buckley, which this The majority in Buckley also disputed and said there is no disjunction between qualified immunity for a prosecutor during an investigation but absolute immunity for the act of setting the prosecution in motion. The Court was absolutely clear in footnote 5 of Buckley that there was no disjunction. And as this Court has indicated in Malley versus Briggs and other cases, anything other than absolute immunity for a prosecutor would impair the, um, would impair the performance of a central actor in the judicial process. And with the Court's permission, I'll reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, Counsel. MR.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court's decision in Buckley v. Fitzsimmons explicitly reserved the question presented today, which is whether a cause of action exists against prosecutors alleged to have fabricated evidence. Respondents' answer to that question asks this Court to announce, for the first time ever, that there is a freestanding due process right not to be framed. That theory would untether due process from the right to a fair trial, which is the process a defendant is due before being deprived — Why do we
8: need that theory? What, I mean, why what? not just say what uh, Newman said and the others said? There's no freestanding right. Well, I, uh, it's just a right not to uh, uh, convict a person uh, with made-up evidence. And, and, of course, a prosecutor, insofar as he's involved, In the prosecutorial stage, is absolutely immune. But if he's involved in the investigatorial stage of that event, well, then he's not immune, absolutely. That's a policy decision. That has nothing to do with freestanding rights.
7: Respondents' primary submission before this court is not that argument. They don't rest. All right, and I'm making that argument. And, and with respect to that, I think we have several uh, responses. The first is that this Court has it rejected that kind of mere foreseeability analysis in the context of Section 1983 no, and — you not need House
8: mere foreseeability. You can fill in those boundaries, tough or not tough, as you wish. But the basic theory isn't a problem, because, after all, we're just drawing a line somewhere within the stage of an ongoing tort on the basis of policy. And Buckley suggests such a line. Now, I don't see a conceptual problem there as my problem. Maybe there are practical problems, but I don't see a
7: conceptual one. I I think there are practical and conceptual problems, which is why Buckley reserved precisely this question in footnote 5. And here is the basic uh, policy concern, policy or conceptual concern. Our point is that if a Section 1983 defendant is absolutely immune for the constitutional wrong, then you can't read back in time. A plaintiff can't look back in time and isolate some other acts as to which they are non-immune and
8: thereby — I interrupt you right there. I would say they are not absolutely immune for the whole constitutional offense. That's the line I'm trying to
7: draw. And Justice Breyer, I'm saying to do that requires you to read the due process violation as occurring sometime before the trial, and and then we're back to the freestanding rationale And the opening up of the Due Process Clause to something this Court has never, ever accepted. So I
8: I I agree with you on that. I agree with you. I won't do it. I'll take it as one tort, began before the investigation stage, ends with conviction. One tort. Now, within that tort, we draw a line, and we draw a line based on policy purposes as to when the, uh, the, the prosecutor is absolutely or qualifiedly immune. And where that line comes is Buckley approximately. It, okay? Now, I don't see a conceptual
7: problem with that, and I'm having a hard time finding a practical problem. The, the conceptual problem is that this Court has been explicit that Section 1983 is not the font of tort law. Rather, you need to isolate a constitutional violation. Here the constitutional violation is the Due Process Clause. That violation begins, as this Court's decisions in Naphew and Pyle say, when the fabricated evidence is introduced at trial in order to secure a conviction. And how do you get the policeman
4: who has fabricated the evidence?
7: Because the policeman uh, essentially induces uh, the prosecution uh, at an earlier point in time and acts through the innocent agent, the prosecutor. Uh, That introduction of evidence at trial, is not something as to which the policeman has any sort of absolute immunity. And so in Justice Breyer's example of a prosecutor introducing evidence, that is something as to which the prosecutor is absolutely immune. That is where the constitutional violation begins.
2: What if the prosecutor knows that it's uh, fabricated evidence? The police officer fabricates the evidence. It says, Mr. Prosecutor, it's a very bad man. I fabricated the evidence. Prosecutor introduces it. What result there? Your footnote six presumes that the prosecutor doesn't know, does he know.
7: And if the prosecutor does know, we don't think that there is a Fifth Amendment due process violation. Against the the the, policeman. Against the the policeman in that circumstance. Again, the the more
2: aggravated the tort, the the, the greater the the liability. And I agree that that seems a little odd. You're basically saying that you cannot aid and abet someone who's immune. Uh, and that's just not the law.
7: No, what I'm saying and what this court's decisions have said is that absolute immunity doesn't exist to protect bad apples. It reflects a larger interest in protecting, uh, judicial information coming into the judicial process. And if prosecutors have to worry at trial, that every act they undertake will somehow open up the door to liability, then they will flinch in the performance of their duties and not introduce that evidence. And that is the distinction between the police officer, who is liable, and the prosecutor, who is absolutely The prosecutor is not
5: going to flinch when he suspects evidence is perjured or fabricated? Do you really want to send a message to police officers that they should not merely flinch but stop? if they have reason to believe that evidence is fabricated?
7: Justice Sotomayor, we absolutely want to send that message. The worry is that allegations of wrongdoing, uh, this Court has recognized that in Imbler and in Vandekamp, can, can supersede that. And just Am to give I right it, in
5: um, that none, none of the — neither of the two prosecutors in this case were sanctioned in any way for the, uh, their conduct? I, I
7: believe that is correct, and I also believe that no ethics complaints were ever brought. That is, rather, the respondents went into federal court seeking money damages instead of ethics uh, violations and the like.
5: But you have no reason to dispute the numerous studies we were provided that show that as a matter of routine, prosecutors are not sanctioned for improper prosecutorial conduct in the investigatory stage, are you?
7: Well, I do think that there's a debate in the briefs before this Court, including the brief by 12,400 or so prosecutors, that takes the reverse view. But be that as it may, I think that's a question for the legislature. This Court has said repeatedly that those ethics and disciplinary violations are uh, are, are a successful deterrent, and there's others as well that this Court has pointed to uh, that may be available, including county well, you, you can't
2: have it both ways and say this is a policy we should take into account, and And then when uh, Justice Sotomayor asks you a question, say, oh, well, that's for the legislature, uh, well, I mean, you think to me you're trying to have it both ways.
7: Well, with respect to a cause of action and, and, uh, and whether the principles of absolute immunity apply to this, I think this Court has already recognized several times that the overriding interest is protecting the judicial process and not letting information uh, be chilled uh, and not come in. And to give you a couple of data points, uh, there are 14.4 million arrests in the year 2006 and 1.1 approximately million felony convictions theory would allow prosecutors in any of those circumstances to be sued for an alleged fabrication of evidence. And that's something that could be that, — that's something that's not that hard to envision, since criminal evidence, unlike civil evidence, is messy. It often involves cooperation agreements, leniency agreements, and the like. And for that reason, it's very natural, and this Court has recognized that in Imbler, for the defendant in a criminal case to say, I'm going to blame the prosecutor. They fabricated evidence. They made this story up and and then seek civil liability. And what this Court has said repeatedly is that the societal interest suffers. And that is why It's not about Justice Kennedy protecting the bad apple uh, and someone who exacerbates the harm by carrying the fabricated evidence through trial. Rather, what this Court's absolute immunity decisions consistently reflect is the principle that when someone is introducing evidence at trial, you don't want to chill them in the performance of their duties in any way through the rubric of civil liability.
6: I don't understand why, at the time of introducing the evidence, The the policy concerns that you describe arise because we were criticizing what he did before he introduced the evidence.
7: When when the evidence is introduced, and it's the prosecutor himself who developed that evidence, maybe through flipping a witness or something like that. And he would know
6: whether or not it was fabricated.
7: Well, he would know whether or not it's fabricated, but the question is whether he would know that he could insulate himself from an allegation of wrongdoing, and respondent's theory, which allows the due process clause to be some sort of freestanding right, would permit those suits even at the earliest stages of an investigation and permit strike suits even before the criminal process is underway. And that, I think, is our fundamental point, which is this court, no court, has ever really accepted the notion that prosecutors can be, immu- can be liable, that there is a cause of action.
6: But haven't we said that during the investigating stage their conduct is d- subject to different rules than during the trial?
7: For purposes of absolute immunity. And we agree with that. So, for example, Justice Stevens, in your Fourth Amendment decision in 1975 on the Seventh Circuit, we agree there is liability when the, when a prosecutor is, for example, cl- conducting a raid or something like that. There, the constitutional violation is complete before the trial. And whatever the prosecutor does I
6: don't understand the reasoning why the time in which the violation is completed, namely after the trial, goes to the question whether there's liability for pretrial conduct.
7: Well, we think there is no liability for pretrial conduct. And so long as you agree with me that the due process clause violation begins only at the trial. It was completed
6: at the trial. But it began when the Fawny fo- the investigation started. The,
7: the, the text of the Due Process Clause says that the deprivation of life, liberty, property with, I under that. due process of law and due process under this Court's decisions is what happens at trial, not before.
0: Thank you, Mr. Kakio. Mr. Clement?
9: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, as I listen to petitioners, I hear two arguments to why there ought to be liability for the prosecutor, rather for the police officer and not the prosecutor. And both of those are arguments this court has already heard and rejected. On the immunity issue, the argument petitioners make seems to distill to the proposition that as long as you're suing a prosecutor for injuries inflicted at trial, the prosecutor ought to have absolute immunity. Now, that's not a crazy theory of immunity. It's exactly the theory of immunity that the Seventh Circuit adopted in the Buckley decision, and this Court reversed unanimously as to the press conference and by a majority opinion with respect to pretrial investigatory conduct involving fabrication. that sounds familiar, it should. That's the conduct that's at issue here. So the absolute immunity issue in this case was decided in Buckley.
10: When now, the issue, when, when the, uh, the claim is based on um, the evaluation of the truthfulness of a witness who eventually testifies at trial where is the line to be drawn between the investigative stage and the prosecutorial stage
9: well i think justice alito the place to draw the line is the place this court drew the line in buckley which is probable cause and before probable cause when prosecutors are engaging in investigatory functions i don't think we want them shaping the witness for trial i think we want them trying to figure out who actually committed this crime and who would we have probable cause to perhaps initiate prosecution? So, what against. concerns
10: me about your argument is that it is a real fear that it will eviscerate Imbler. Now, maybe you can convince me that it will not have that effect, but uh, as the, the Solicitor General argued at the end of his argument, a, a very t- in the typical criminal case, the witnesses are not John Q. Public with, who have uh, never engaged in any wrongful activity. A typical witness is, well, let's, let's take a, the case of the prosecution of, a, a white, uh, of a, the CEO of a, a huge corporation for insider trading or some other white-collar violation. And the chief witness against this person is, let's say, the CFO of this company, who, when initially questioned by law enforcement officials and investigatory officials, uh, made made statements denying any participation in any wrongdoing, but eventually uh, changed his story uh, and testifies against the the CEO at trial uh, in exchange for uh, consideration in in a plea deal. Uh, Now, your argument, in in, in a case like that, where you could change the facts, make it an organized crime case, make it a prosecution of a drug kingpin who's uh, testified the witness against him is uh, a lower-ranking person in the organization who has a criminal record, maybe has previously committed perjury, uh, has made numerous false statements, is subject to impeachment. In all of those cases, a claim could be brought against the prosecutor.
9: Well, Justice Lee, let me try to answer it this way, which is you mentioned both organized crime cases and insider trading cases. Well, I think if there's any circuit in which those kind of claims are going to be brought, it's probably the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit has lived with this rule since the year two thousand and the Zari decision that's already been mentioned. There has not been a floodgates opening that there's not been a torrent of these claims. There's been a trickle. They remain very hard to allege.
10: And the allegation. Well, I mean, that might be true as an empirical matter, but I don't understand why it would be hard to allege. What would I, you have to allege uh, to get by Iqbal or to get by summary judgment? You allege that the testimony at trial was false, uh, and that the prosecutor knew that it was false. And in support of that, you have prior inconsistent statements by the witness and you may have the evidence that was introduced by the defense at trial that is inconsistent with that. You have a tribal issue. You certainly get by 12b-6. 6
9: As I hear your hypothetical, I don't think so, because the thing that's missing is the allegation that the prosecutors fabricated that evidence. This isn't a case about coaching a witness. Well, but what
0: what if there's an acquittal? Then you have at least a jury not believing the evidence, and that also is strong support for at least supporting an allegation. He fabricated it. Nobody believed it when it was presented at trial.
9: Well, two things, Your Honor. One is, obviously, without the fabrication allegations that take place during the investigatory stage, you would be protected by Imbler. Now, in the acquittal situations, this Court doesn't have a case directly on point. But if I read the Hartman decision, for example, Hartman against Moore, and apply it to this context, I assume that in the context of an acquittal, If you tried to bring a claim like this, this Court would interpret, through the common law, a a malicious prosecution-type element that you would have to satisfy. Why is it difficult to
10: allege fabrication? The the, the allegation is that at at point A, this witness denied that the defendant did anything wrong. And then at point B, the defendant told an entirely different story after having received from the Government a plea deal that uh, promises no prosecution. And uh, entry into the witness protection program or something like that. That certainly is sufficient evidence to uh, a, a fabrication, is it not?
9: Well, Justice Alito, let me say this. First of all, you're going to have to pinpoint those kind of allegations pre probable cause, which is not going to be the case in a lot of cases. Second of all, I mean, this court. I, th-
4: I, I don't know what you
9: mean by that. In, in the typical case, if, if the witness, perhaps in the first instance, comes up with one testimony and later comes up in an, in, with, with a different story later, the question for purposes of absolute immunity is going to be, did all of the conduct that you're alleging, the fabrication, did all of it take place before probable cause attached? And in a lot of cases, prosecutors don't even get involved until after probable cause, until after they've been arrested, something like that. And, and that's in those an cases,
10: entirely false picture of the way Uh, Any sophisticated prosecution is handled today. And completely false. And you want uh, — the prosecutor may not know whether there's probable cause until the prosecutor interviews the witness. And and again — And so then you have to go back and determine whether there was — if there wasn't probable cause before the interview, then there is liability. But if there was probable cause before the interview, then there isn't liability.
9: I think, if I understand your hypothetical, the question would actually be whether there was probable cause before the re-interview, because if at the
10: point before that the re-interview, because the prosecutor doesn't want to take the case to the grand jury before looking this witness in the eye and seeing whether this this guy, who's got a lot of impeachment baggage, is is a, is a credible witness.
9: Well. Two things, Justice Alito. First of all, if you have all — if you have the interview and the re-interview before probable cause, and you have the allegations that it was done for the avowed purpose of depriving the person of their liberty, then you would, I think, apply Iqbal. And you would ask, under all the circumstances of that case, whether it's a plausible allegation. I and mean, this court's obviously in a better position than I am to say how it would apply Iqbal in those kind of cases. But what I can tell you is that for nearly a decade, the Second Circuit has had this rule now, the Second Circuit is the circuit that brought you Iqbal. So for that same decade, they did not have the rule of Iqbal. And yet they didn't have a torrent of these claims. So I think going forward, if you recognize these how, how claims you,
0: I mean, we hear that type of argument every time, because there's usually a circuit conflict here, and, and you look at one circuit and say the world hasn't fallen. But you have no idea how many of these claims are asserted and dismissed at an early stage or, or whatever. You're saying what, that there haven't been many Second Circuit opinions? On this question?
9: I think if you look at reported, both unpublished and published, Second Circuit decisions at the District Court level and the Court of Appeals level, you will find very few cases that even cite Zari. I think it's something like maybe 17, I think, is what we found. You think
0: be, do you think we'll, there will be more if we agree with your theory?
9: In the Second Circuit, I don't think so. I think it will be the same number in the Second Circuit. Now, in the Seventh Circuit, that's lived with the Buckley remand rule, I suppose there will now be a couple of dozen cases there. But I do think it's revealing that the circuit that has certainly the kind of cases that Justice Alito was dealing with has not had a flood of these cases. As far as I'm aware, the U.S. Attorney's offices in that circuit have not had to rework the way they do business in those circuits. And I do think that these are claims that are going to be difficult to implement. Well, but it's
0: also you don't really know, right? In other words, we're concerned about the chilling effect on the prosecutors. We don't know what the impact of the Second Circuit's decision has been on the prosecutors.
9: Well, Your Honor, we don't know for sure. We don't know either way, because either way this Court is going to adopt a clear rule. What I can say is at least I'm pointing to empirical evidence in a circuit that's lived with this rule for a decade. That seems to me a better empirical basis to go on than absolutely nothing. But let me give you another example, which is this Court a couple of years ago decided a decision called Hartman against Moore. Hartman against Moore sort of recognized that there was a tort called, I think, retaliatory inducement to prosecute. Now in footnote 8, this Court recognized that actually you could sue a prosecutor for retaliatory inducement to prosecute if you focused on the investigatory activities. That's exactly the same basic theory we have here which is you focus on the investigatory activities of a prosecutor and say that there is a valid 1983 claim. Now, again, to my knowledge, there have not been a flood of Hartman claims brought against prosecutors. I think —
0: What is the the basis for the 1983 claim uh, without the submission at
9: trial? Without the submission at trial? I mean, it would depend, I suppose, on the circumstances. You could have certainly a Fourth Amendment Well, you
0: know I'm not talking about the Fourth Amendment violation, which is complete whether there's a trial or not.
9: Well, and, and then maybe I just need a, a concrete hypothetical. Let's say, let's say let, me, let me provide one. Um, suppose that there was, the, the, this, the prosecutor put on this fabricated evidence at trial, and then the, the, the whole case sort of unraveled because the system actually worked the way it's supposed to. On cross-examination, the witness cracked, and it became clear that there was this conspiracy to use perjured evidence. Now, at that point... I mean, I suppose the government's theory would be because you never deprive the person of their liberty. The knowing use by the prosecutor of perjured testimony at trial does not violate the due process clause. Boy, I hope that's not the rule. I mean, I hope that in a Mooney case, if you bring the make a Mooney violation against somebody who's actually guilty, so you knowingly use perjured testimony against somebody that's that's guilty. So if you did a harmless error analysis, you'd say, well, the use of the perjured testimony really didn't deprive the person of their liberty because they what, were otherwise what, — What's
2: prepared. your best authority for the proposition that there's liability in the case the Chief Justice puts? What's your best case?
9: I, I, I'm not sure I have a best case for that, Justice Kennedy. I mean, let me, let me give you what I think is a very good case that illustrates a similar principle. But I, I, will, I will be candid that I think this is an extrapolation from Mooney, but a very sort of clear extrapolation from Mooney. My best case in some ways, I think, is Malley. Because their proposition seems to be that this is the other argument you've heard and rejected, is that if there's an absolutely immune act in the causal chain then that somehow means that there's no violation. Think about who was sued in Malley. It was the police officers. What did the police officers do? They procured an invalid arrest warrant. Now, did their actions, independent of the Absolute Immune Act of the Magistrate, injure the plaintiffs? No. Without the Magistrate issuing the warrant, there was no arrest, there's no search, there's no injury to the plaintiffs. we allow in our system somebody to bring a constitutional tort claim even though there's an absolutely immune act in the causal chain the lower court in mali actually accepted exactly this argument that if you have any absolutely immune act in the causal chain that breaks it off this court rejected it and was frankly fairly dismissive it. dismissed it in a footnote footnote 7 of you'll the have opinion. to refresh my memory
2: wasn't that a fourth amendment violation ultimately
9: it was a fourth amendment violation that's So that's not important. Well, no, I think it illustrates the principle, which is you don't have to have a completed constitutional violation in your 1983 action. I mean, Malley illustrates that principle, but so does the text of of Section 1983, frankly. Section 1983 doesn't force you to have a completed constitutional violation. It provides liability if you subject someone to a constitutional violation or cause them to be subjected to a constitutional violation. The difference
4: here is that the the, uh, Absolutely Immune Act — which follows the uh, the unlawful act is is an absolutely immune act by the very actor who <laughs> performed the earlier act that, that that you say induces liability. And so the argument is, what's the use of giving him uh, liability later on if, uh, if if you can simply drag him into litigation by by alleging that he uh, at an earlier stage uh, uh, committed a violation? Well, I mean, they, that, that's the difference. I mean, to me, that's, that's the, uh, uh, the crux of this, that it is the same actor who has absolute uh, liability whom you're trying to get on the basis of, of earlier action.
6: Well, that's Justice, the reason the rule seems perverse. What's that? That's the very reason the rule that you're arguing for seems
9: perverse. Well, I, I, would ask, I would ask both of you to go back and read two things, and I'd particularly like Justice Scalia to go back and read your separate opinion in Burns. Because in Burns, you confronted just this issue. You conceptualized what happens at the warrant stage as a variant of malicious prosecution. And you said, now, could a prosecutor, sort of as kind of a complaining witness in that context, procure a warrant that they were subsequently involved in? And you said, I don't see any reason why not. I think you got it right there. The other thing I'd ask you to look at is footnote eight of the Hartman against Moore decision. Because there, you were dealing with a retaliatory prosecution claim. Now the court's opinion was very careful to say, you know, it's really not a, retaliation, a retaliatory prosecution claim. What it is is a retaliatory inducement to prosecute case.
0: If you cannot rely on anything that goes on at the trial to establish the due process violation, what, what do you rely on to establish the violation? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, yes, the question is, where is it complete, or do you say it, it doesn't have to be a complete violation?
9: Well, I, I guess what I would do, Mr. Chief Justice, is try to take issue with your premise, which is that we can't avert to the Absolute Immune Act at all. Of course we can't. I mean, this is well, Let's say speak- that you,
0: let's say that you can't, because we read Imbler as conferring absolute immunity on what goes on uh, at the trial. And if you can't advert to that, you don't have a constitutional violation, right?
9: Well, I would still say we do. But please let me try to take one more crack at the premise, which is Imbler is not an use of immunity case, and in this court has rejected the proposition that just because you're absolutely immune for an act, there's no evidentiary use of that in going after conduct that was earlier in the causal chain. This court specifically confronted that in a case called Dennis Against Sparks that was with you know the granddaddy of them all, judicial immunity, and said even the judge's actions could be proved up as part of a tort action. So there is no use immunity for what Against the against the judge? It wasn't against the judge, but I, with all due respect, I don't think that matters. And I also think — Well, it, that's the distinction here in this case, isn't it? Well, but, it, but it's a distinction without a difference. It's a distinction this Court confronted in, in Hartman in footnote 8. It's a distinction Justice Scalia confronted. And also, I mean, the consequences of accepting their view is to really turn all of your absolute immunity cases into a fool's errand. I mean, think about Kalina. I mean, the supporting affidavit wasn't the thing that inflicted injury. Now, the thing that inflicted injury were the two documents that the supporting affidavit supported, the warrant and the information. Now, it would make no sense for this Court to say, well, there's only qualified immunity for the supporting affidavit, so let's send this back to the lower Court if you couldn't even get into evidence the fact that there was an information or a warrant. So, too, in a Malley case, of course you can use — now, it's a different, it's a different person. In Kalina, it's, in Kalina, it's the same person. Or take a look at Burns, for example. In Burns, the prosecutor's advice to the police officer that's not what injured the plaintiff in that case. It was the warrant that was eventually... Procured. In terms of the
0: chilling impact on the prosecutor, what difference does it make whether it's uh, at trial or pretrial, for use at
9: trial? Well, I think it makes all the difference in the world in the sense that if, you, if they know that everything that they do at trial is going to be protected, those functions, which is the basis of this Court's functional approach to absolute immunity, are going to be protected. Now, if they're but going to be- they
4: won't be protected. They won't have that assurance because when they, when they produce evidence at trial, oh, yeah, I guess the production uh, at trial will be protected, but you're, you're telling us that they can go back and say, ah, but you got that evidence in a bad manner. And therefore, we can sue you not for introducing it at trial, but for fabricating it before trial. I I don't see that there's much of a difference as far as the, uh, the deterrent effect upon the prosecutor is concerned.
9: Well, I think there is going to be an effect on the deterrent effect on the prosecutor pre-trial, which is they will be procured. I mean, think about the contrary incentive you're, you're creating. Suppose you're a prosecutor. You've participated in the misconduct before trial. You now have the decision to make. Okay, I, I, was, I was complicit in the fabrication of this perjured evidence. Should I put it on into evidence? Well, let's see. If I don't put it on into evidence and I come clean now, I'm actually liable for the arrest and all the pretrial detention. If I actually introduce it into evidence now, I'm scot-free. I mean, There's a only- different tendency,
8: which I'd say this is a slight fluke, the, what you're describing. I'm more worried about what Justice Alito brought up, that, that other things being equal, I think it's probably a good thing to get prosecutors involved in the questioning process, uh, that, that it has a kind of check on the police. And uh, the concern I'd have is that the — uh, this will discourage the prosecutors from becoming involved in the witness, in, witness questioning process, at least not before the police are well on the way. And uh, that is a very negative incentive, I would think. So what is your most pro-prosecutorial rule that you could live with that uh, will, in fact, minimize the risk of that kind of disincentive? Are you just going to say, well, Buckley? Or well, is there something, I mean, I can see Buckley with the, with the uh, 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 you know, probable cause. It turns on and off as you're talking to the witness. First what he says you have the probable cause, then you don't, then you do, then you don't. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I just want you to give your best thought to this problem and tell me what is the most safe rule that will allow you to win your case.
9: Well, Justice Breyer, I mean, I would say that there's no reason for this court to disturb the line it drew in Buckley. Now, I could, because of this no, case. we have the
8: Micah's briefs the- here that give us a lot of reason. They say they say it's very discouraging to, uh, 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 district, uh, you, uh, you know, AUSAs or, or uh, DAs uh, uh, going in and uh, talking to the witnesses with the police. Well, they, they do it in Chicago, I think. In other places, they do it a lot.
9: Well, I mean, another thing, presumably, Justice Breyer, you want to encourage is having the police officers come to the prosecutors and get legal advice about what they're doing. Now, this Court squarely confronted that question in Burns and said the advice-giving function, which is a function only a prosecutor, only a lawyer anyways, can perform. Well, could uh, you
2: answer Justice Breyer's question, which uh, I I think raises a, a a critical point in terms of Justice Alito's examples of talking to the witness. Uh, Why isn't that at some uh, point, I think, in Buckley, the judicial phase? Why is this the judicial phase?
9: Well, Justice Kinnon, let me respond to it. Let me say why I don't think I can really improve on the probable cause line. I mean, in this case, the, the police officers and the prosecutors were involved in this the from purpose, the get-go probable cause
2: doesn't work, because you have, you have probable cause once you fabricate the evidence.
9: Well, I, that, I think that, for purposes circular. No, I don't think so. I think for purposes of evaluating when there's probable cause, you have to eliminate the fabricated evidence. And so I think that you evaluate probable cause. But here's why I think it's the right line. Because think about the prosecutor's special function. If you don't have probable cause to arrest any individual for a crime, then the function the police officers ought to be performing is one of a truth seeking function and that is a classic police investigatory function now the moment they have probable cause i'm willing to listen to the argument that at that point they shift roles and at that point they're not looking at the evidence the way the police officer is just to find out who done it but they're looking at it to say well i have a job for you. i have to put a case on and you know this person says what they say, and you know there's some problems with that, and the jury's not going to believe that. So let me talk to him some more. That's why I think the probable cause line is not only administrable, but it makes sense in this context.
2: Suppose the prosecutor isn't sure there's probable cause, and he call, calls in the uh, accountant, the CFO, uh, and really doesn't begin to believe his story. So he starts probing, and finally he gets the CFO to change his story with, a, with the plea, gar- plea bargain. Uh, would, would, would that be part of the judicial process?
9: Or is that still clearly investigatory? Uh, I think at the point, if, if if the interview begins and he doesn't think he has probable cause, I think that well, that's trying to find out. That's the, qu- the way it works. Of course, that. he's trying to find out. He's, but he's, but he's not trying to find out if there's probable cause necessarily to identify a particular suspect. What he's trying to do is, is there probable cause to arrest anyone? And that's exactly the question a police officer asks every single day.
8: Well, also, uh, you're making me more worried, because I think if 85 percent of all the defendants or 90 percent plead guilty, it might be a highly desirable thing to get prosecutors involved in the truth-discovering process. I mean, so that they don't just see themselves as the job of, well, we're going to take somebody put him in jail. I and mean, maybe, maybe that's a, a reason for pushing it back a little bit, this, this line.
9: Well, I, you know, I'm not sure what the logical place to push it back any further is. And I think, you know, just — Where have you got it
8: now? You've got it as when there is probable cause for believing that someone has committed a crime? Yes. Someone. So it someone. needn't be the
9: particular person they
8: eventually indict. That's right. Uh-huh.
9: Okay. And let me just say this, Justice Breyer. I mean, I, I know you don't want me to talk about Burns, but I'd like to just for a second, because I think it's a very similar policy concern. As a policy matter, sure, we want prosecutors to get — give advice to police officers. But qualified immunity is not insignificant protection. And think about that. I mean, the incentives you're creating — this is the same anomaly that the Court recognized in Buckley. The incentive well, we would really, thought it
0: was — I'm sorry. Why don't you finish your answer?
9: I just wanted to say that the incentive would really be perverse. Under Burns, if the police — if the police officer comes to the prosecutor and says, you know, we want to fabricate evidence to frame these people, can we do it? And the prosecutor says, yes, you can do that, go ahead, there's qualified immunity. Now, if the prosecutor says, uh, go ahead and let me help, um, there would somehow be absolute immunity. I mean, that is really an anomalous result, and it's the anomaly that caused this Court in Buckley to draw the line at probable cause.
0: I was going to re- suggest in response to your point that, you know, qualified immunity is really significant. Of course it is, but we've recognized in a number of contexts, in like the judicial area, for example, that it's it's not enough. We've also recognized that in the prosecutorial area. And trying to draw the line where you do I think this was one of the points Justice Alito was making, is that sometimes you're investigating and preparing uh, your case at the same time. You don't just sit back and say, I'm, I'm just going to look and see what I can find. You have particular areas. The prosecution requires you to show four things. So you're looking at those four things. You're preparing your case and you're investigating
9: And and again, the Court addressed exactly this Court in the Buckley — exactly that issue in the Buckley decision and said, sure, you know, from — with the benefit of hindsight, you can sort of retrospectively look and make anything in the investigatory stage part of — and part and parcel of the prosecution. And I don't think that was something that this Court — saw as a reason not to draw a clean line that's consistent with the functional approach. It's consistent not just with Buckley, but with Burns and with Kalina and with the whole host of this Court's decisions. In
10: in answer to to Justice Breyer's question, would it be be practical uh, and uh, conceptually correct to draw the line at the stage at which the prosecutor is interviewing witnesses to evaluate credibility? So at that stage? the prosecutorial function has begun, and absolute
9: immunity would kick in. It, it, well, if I could add, I mean, I, I suppose I might be not, able Not on whether
10: there's probable cause, because probable cause is, is, is evanescent. It comes and it goes. It, 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 is, uh, it, it, is intri- it is inextricably intertwined with what the prosecutor is doing in questioning the witness.
9: And and let me say this. I I guess if I could add a couple of words, I think we could probably live with that line, which is if the prosecutor's interviewing those witnesses with an eye towards credibility for use at trial, I mean, that's a line that I think would be, I think, probably pretty consistent with probable cause, but something that we could live with.
10: With a line toward investigating credibility for use at a trial, which is at at that point foreordained, but — If the evaluation is being done for the purpose of determining whether there should be a trial, then no. That's your answer?
9: Well, I I mean, I worry that words are being put in my mouth. I would say that if the prosecutor is interviewing the witness for the purpose of uh, judging their credibility at trial, then that's something for which you may be able to sort of – tweak the line on Buckley and say that's covered. I actually think it won't make any difference because I think that should only be happening after probable cause. If I mean, I well,
0: your approach then encourages prosecutors to be trigger happy. They're prosecuting right now because they know then that everything else, they have absolute immunity. So, uh, you know, shoot first and ask questions later.
9: Well, shoot first. You mean go to an impartial magistrate and try to get somebody arrested or? No, I mean, just I, begin
0: the formulation. I I'm starting to prosecute this person, um, uh, rather than saying, let's look, let's investigate, let's interview, and then decide who we're going to prosecute. Well, well, I su- and Justice Alito's hypothetical, you've got a CFO, you can, you know, you've probably got probable cause to go after him as well, but you want to begin interviewing him uh, to see if he's going to flip uh, in your case against the CEO.
9: Well, if you have probable cause, then I think you're on the other side of the Buckley line, and that's an objective determination, and I think- So you've
0: got, you've got to make that decision early in the process rather than later.
9: Well, I think it's — I'm not sure it's a decision you have to make. I think it's actually something that would be evaluated objectively after the fact. And I think the way that this Court should approach this case is neither of the parties before you have asked this Court to overturn Buckley. I wouldn't do it under those circumstances. But, of course, it's worth adding that if you were going to overturn Buckley, then the place to probably start would be to go back to first principles. And if you're going to go back to first principles, then what you're going to find is that there was no common law support at all for absolute immunity. And I wouldn't think that this Court was particularly interested in coming up with implied immunities that aren't in a statute and had no basis at the common law. And that's why I think some of the justices that have looked at this as an original matter have tended to be quite reluctant in recognizing absolute immunity, because it lacks support in the text and it lacks support at the common law. So we're, we're happy with the lines that this Court has already drawn. But if the court's going to go back to first principles, well, let's go back to first principles and look at the, the statute Congress passed in 1871. That statute did not provide any immunities. And I do think, as we say in the brief, this is a case where it's important not to lose the forest for the trees, because this is a statute that was passed in 1871. This is one of the great civil rights statutes. Is it really plausible to think that the Congress that passed this statute didn't want to provide a remedy in the circumstances before the Court today? I think it's clear from this Court's cases. There may not be a case that lines up all the dots exactly, but I think it's clear from this Court's cases that the police officer that engages in this misconduct has committed a grave, grave constitutional violation and ought to be liable. I think the prosecutor who engages in the pretrial misconduct and then doesn't participate in the trial is just as liable as that police officer. And I can't think of a single reason why the only reason a prosecutor would get absolute immunity is if they not only participated in the pretrial misconduct, but completed the scheme by committing further misconduct at trial. For all those reasons, we think the Court should affirm. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Clement. Uh, Mr. Sanders, you have five, five minutes remaining.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. We have four main points. Um, Beginning with the Second Circuit's decision in Zare and subsequent cases in the Second Circuit have significantly cut back on the meaning of Zare. the Ray decision which we discuss in our reply brief, the Gonzalez decision which we discuss in our opening brief, have not allowed for this kind of continuous liability for a prosecutor. They've made very clear, particularly the Gonzalez decision, that when it is a prosecutor's actions before a judge advocating on behalf of the State that are responsible for a deprivation of Liberty, in that situation absolute immunity
4: applies. I think it's important to understand the consequences of affirming What what does that prove? What does that prove? I don't understand why you bring that up. Um, It shows the fact that there aren't many cases? Only 17 uh, in, in the Second Circuit doesn't mean anything, because the Second Circuit is not applying as liberal a rule as your opponent suggests. Is that?
1: Uh, no, Your Honor. I think, your it's Honor? To say, I, I think it's to say that the Zari decision has not had the kind of impact and has not been applied in the way that respondents are asking for it to
4: be applied. Yeah, that's, that's just what I said. And, and therefore, and, and had it been uh, applied that way, there w- would have been more than 17 cases in the Second Circuit. I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, okay. um, the um, — I think it's important to understand
1: the consequences of affirming the courts below, either on the basis of the Zari theory or on the freestanding due process theory offered by respondents, it would work a radical change in the law of immunity because it would mean that far more wrongful conviction claims against prosecutors would go forward under only qualified immunity. Uh, That is the inevitable consequence of affirming the courts below in this case. These cases are not difficult, as Justice Alito said, to plead, um, particularly because in most of these sorts of cases, most of the discovery will have been done during the post-conviction review process. And so there will be plenty of — plenty of grounds for a plaintiff to, to allege a plausible violation during the investigative process and survive a motion to dismiss or survive summary judgment, even if ultimately that comes to nothing. The consequence would be to hold prosecutors to inconsistent standards of liability qualified immunity or absolute immunity, based simply on the allegations in a complaint, something this Court has specifically said is is not appropriate and should not be
3: done. I I want, before you finish, to get a clear picture of your view of the dimensions of the claim, Mm -hmm. because you rely heavily on the trial part. Everything proceeds as it was alleged to have proceeded in this case, except that Just before the trial begins, Harris comes forward and said it was all a pack of lies, and so there is no trial. Is anyone in this picture liable? The defendants have been incarcerated for some time, but when it blows up, they're let out. No trial but everything else the same.
1: Your Honor, I believe there would be no due process liability. There might be two independent grounds for liability under some Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution theory, which is not at issue in this case, and, and possibly under State law remedies, as, as uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Thomas indicated in their concurrence in Albright. We don't go to the Federal Constitution's due process clause unless we're sure that the plaintiffs have exhausted their possible remedies under State law. IN THIS CASE, IOWA STATE LAW PROVIDES A CAUSE OF ACTION FOR MALICIOUS PROSECUTION. YOU you SAID,
3: I THINK YOUR your POSITION IS THAT DUE PROCESS BEGINS WHEN TRIAL IS UNDERWAY. AND BEFORE THAT, DUE PROCESS DOESN'T ENTER THE PICTURE.
1: YOUR HONOR, I BELIEVE THAT THIS COURT'S DECISIONS MAKE CLEAR THAT DUE PROCESS APPLIES TO THE JUDICIAL PROCESS, THAT IS, THE FILING OF CHARGES. And the later conduct of the process of pretrial detention, isn't that a deprivation of liberty? Your Honor, it would be, but that would be
6: Fourth Amendment territory. Why would it be Fourth Amendment? Why isn't Fourteenth Amendment right on the nose?
1: It deprived of liberty without due process at all. Uh, Your Honor, this court, uh, seven justices in this court's decision in Albright, agreed that there was no due process cause of action for the wrongful institution of criminal proceedings, uh, that in that case, uh, there may be some sort of Fourth Amendment claim. There may be some sort of state law claim under Parrot versus Taylor. But I have not. But per- that case talked about the institution of
6: prosecution, not the deprivation of liberty during pretrial detention, which is a different matter.
1: Uh, Your Honor, I believe that the Court's Fourth Amendment jurisprudence would still indicate that that is a, a concern of the Fourth Amendment, not the due process clause, and that pursuant to Paul versus Davis and Parrott versus Taylor, there may indeed be some sort of state law cause of action for defamation or loss of status, but that there is no support for a federal due process claim.
0: Thank you, Counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.